Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. She grew up playing for the Toronto Diamonds and DRBC before moving on to the University of Toronto, where she's a three-time OUA champion and a national champion, and she's been playing in France since 2019. Please welcome to the show, Veronica Dorillo. Veronica, thanks for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Yeah, this is going to be fun. I thought I followed your career, but even like just talking to you before the show and some notes you sent me, uh, there's some stuff to learn here. So I didn't remember you as a Diamonds girl. I remember uh, like Vernon Evans and some other like super athletic kids coming through that club. So just tell me your first experience of volleyball playing for Clayton and some of the other coaches there. Oh, okay. So I, uh, I when I played for Toronto Diamonds, I played with... Tiana Vernon's sister, Kadisha, actually. So nice. she was on my team. And we were the younger team, and Tiana and a bunch of the other girls, like Denisha Moss and stuff, they were on the higher team up, right? So I didn't technically get to play with Clayton per se, right? But you just know Clayton. He runs the club, you know, he's he's a big guy there, you know. So it was it was a very it was my first intro to this club scene. You know, I never played club before and it was a really nice experience to play there for three years, you know, and I definitely learned a lot for sure. Yeah. Like I think for young kids today, starting at 15, you, they would say that was late. I don't think in your era or even my era, that was uncommon, but uh, what other sports were you playing before you took volleyball series? Like you must've been playing something competitive before you did volleyball, right? I, my parents, you know, to get rid of like a lot of energy that I had, they put me in gymnastics, they put me in uh, tennis, soccer, Basketball was one of the sports that kind of clicked for sure for a while. And I played not any rep league for say, but I did a bunch of camps and it wasn't until I got to middle school that I was introduced to the club scene by my volleyball coach actually there who suggested the idea I play. It was um, my parents, we, they came from Poland and my coach at the time, he was Polish too. So there was that kind of like mutual connection just because we were Polish I was talking to my dad and he was telling him about the club scene. My dad had no idea that the OBA was a thing here, you know, even knew about the, also about like volleyball. So when he was talking to my dad and I kind of came over and I listened and I'm like, oh, I've never heard of rep volleyball. That sounds really cool. And he said, yeah, Toronto Diamond's having a trial. You should definitely go. And he, and I'm thinking, I'm like, oh, so I'm like very like skilled. You know, I think I have good coordination. He's like, she's very tall. She will definitely make the team. They'll take her for sure. I'm thinking, sick <laughs> <laughs> so i obviously you were the tall kid so i'm guessing you started in the middle but in, in again talking to you you played beach you can play left side you can play right side like were you stuck in that middle the first year or did they teach you how to pass as well when i played in club i was solely middle so for the four years that i played club volleyball i was solely middle blocker for sure and the only time that i ever did received was on the beach actually so Definitely was a shock when I first started playing beach in my 15U year as well. Couldn't pass. It was very <laughs> rough, but I had such an amazing partner who was so patient with me and she taught me everything. And she was our libero. So she was phenomenal. Awesome. So you're, you're kind of have a late entry point uh, into club. At what point did you know that college and university could be a thing and you started looking at like you could play post-secondary? Uh, 17U. 17U. I, I think my season ended... And I started hearing about, I was thinking about university, obviously thinking about my next steps, my career, my education, especially. But I also thought I want to still play volleyball. Is there even an opportunity to do so? And then I heard about athletes going to the States to play NCAA. And I thought, wow, that would be a dream, you know? So obviously my parents are super supportive and they said, all right, 
you want to do this? I was full committed. And so we found a recruiting program, I believe called NCSA. And they kind of walked us through the process. They taught me how to write emails to coaches asking, hey, are you looking for a six foot one middle blocker this year? You know, and I started sending out emails to the states. I went also to, there were these big tryouts as well too. But I also sent emails as well to coaches in in uh, Toronto, Ontario as well, because if I had the chance to stay in Toronto as well, that would be also amazing. You know, so I started sending out emails to Western, Guelph, U of T, Ryerson, all of them. And uh, yeah, it was that 17 new year, because even when I played club, going into my 18 new year, I remember talking to my club coach, Kate Klain, actually, I was supposed to be coached by Klain at the time. And uh, my dad asked him, hey, will the girls be doing any USA tournaments by any chance? Because his previous athletes and previous teams did too. And he said, unfortunately, no, we won't be. And we may not be going to nationals this year. So immediately I thought, okay, I unfortunately have to change clubs. Because if I wanted my dream to come true to play NCAA or even OUA level, I have to get this footage. I have to play in these tournaments and stuff like that. For sure. And was that pretty tough? Like, I, I know it's in the same area of kind of the GTA, just kind of going to the East end there, but even socially leaving a club team that you played for three years to go to a new one, like that's obviously a pretty big decision, like a little bit further commute, I'm guessing, like what kind of factored in, like, obviously it's a big decision to play post-secondary, but what else were you managing? A lot of the social aspect, like you said, and, you know, played with the same girls for about three years, you know, and it was really hard to leave that. But at the same time too, I wanted to be a little selfish for myself because I'm thinking about my future, you know? And so when I decided to look at other teams, though, I looked at, or I looked at Scarborough Titans, Durham Attack, and you know, we see all these clubs too, just kind of in the region, you know, because location was a huge thing for me too, growing up in North York. And if my parents had to drive me a little bit outside of that, they were willing, bless them, they were willing to do it, you know, because it was their kids' dream. <laughs> and, so, you know, and I think that was a huge thing. Synergy, I was I tried out for because I had a coach, coached me in high school, actually, for co-ed for about two years. And I had a good relation with him. And I thought, he told me he coached at Scarborough Titans, actually. And I thought, you know what? I'd be okay to be coached by him in a club, actually. That would be great. But somehow, Synergy kind of fell apart that year. Not really sure why. And so I then went to try with Durham Attack. And then with the RBC actually at the end, which is where I ended up staying because of just the environment. Nice. So uh, obviously a lot of young athletes will pursue the NCAA and it is very appealing, but at what point did the OUA start to hit your radar a little bit more that uh, academically, athletically, you could still have a very good experience while staying closer to home? I think main thing for me, and I think was just like the financial aspect too. I wasn't getting offers from D1, D2, hundred percent. So that, and that, idea of, you know, having my full scholarship paid for, you know, unfortunately didn't happen. And going to the States is expensive. The tuition there is insanely expensive too. And, you know, I also just didn't get as many bites, right. You know, but closer to the end of my 18 U year, I remember I went to a U of T game actually. And it was between, I think it was like a final four. It was between McMaster and U of T at the time. And I'm sitting on the bleachers in the old gym with my dad and we're watching UFT play. And I remember I was just kind of in awe watching them play, you know, and like they had this cohesion, this kind of like fluidity. And I thought, 
I want to play for U of T. And I looked at my dad and I told him, I want to play for this team. How can I do this? And my dad's like, you want to? I'm like, yeah, I'm going to work so hard so that I can, you know, and that's when I started, and I started sending out emails and getting in contact with Christine Drakich, actually. Nice. And now that it is revisionist history, hopefully you don't mind saying, but were you considering other schools or you were full speed trying to talk to Christine and see if, if U of T needed somebody in your year to play middle or other positions or anything? I was considering other schools for sure. I was considering Ryerson and Guelph for sure, but U of T was my top for sure. hundred percent, both academically and school wise. Yes. And then jump ahead. You, you commit to U of T. I'm trying to find the timeline. I think you're close to Anna Fiore's age. So you must've been like the babies on the team, but who were the vets like Crookshank and Denise Woody? And was also a little bit ahead of you. Like who, who were some of the, the older athletes you could look up to in your first year at U of T? Uh, so yeah, I entered the same year with Amphior, actually, bless her, love her. And we had the vets like Jen Nielsen, Sarah Chapin, we had Boyana Radan, Powerhouse, Maddie Mandrick, Denise Wooding, uh, Angie Belhumer, uh, Haley Crookshank, Tessa Davis, you know, we had those athletes, like a solid, solid team and a solid senior class for sure. I definitely looked up to these girls and they definitely they led our team and they led it in such a positive way too, you know, especially as a, as a first year coming in, who's absolutely terrified, having no idea what to expect, you know? So they did a phenomenal job being such a wonderful upperclassman and being so supportive too, you know, and leading us in such a empowering way as well. For sure. Like, do you have any examples for, for me and the listeners here? Because obviously Christine does a great job, but I think they do a great job there that the the peer leadership there is just off the charts, right? That it's not just Christine's voice the whole time that there are, you know, the vets kind of taking care of the young. So anything that stood out in your mind that you're just like, oh, I wouldn't have got through first year if it wasn't for like this. Uh, just our overall support. You know, I remember some, I, whenever I am in my first year, definitely was nervous just because it was a different environment. And I did change position in the moment I came in, I changed to a right side and I was nervous because I, you know, changing from a position I played for, for four years, moving into an unknown position that I'm not too familiar with. It was terrifying, but I remember kind of following in the steps of Jen Nielsen and she was such, um, you know, just a positive influence. She's like, Hey, you'll get the next one. It's okay. Don't worry. You'll come back from it. Don't worry. Remember to wait for the ball and go, they're not a middle. They're not a middle. She, she kept telling me to wait, you know, and just kind of that positive reinforcement telling them like, you're going to be fine. You're going to be okay. Even off the court too, in the team room, just them coming up to us and saying, Hey, like how school, how are you doing? You know, all this stuff, just trying to create that connection with us, you know? So I think that really, which is a nice thing to experience, especially as a first year who didn't practically know anybody. For sure. For sure. And U of T's done a, an amazing job, especially at the, at the provincial level where if she doesn't have the record, she must be close for the amount of times Christine's been to the final four. But uh, your cycle was really special where you guys host nationals and you don't quite get it done, but you make a semifinal and play a lot of tough games. And then you add a doorman and everybody's a year older and you take down a national championships, which uh, at this time, some of our Ontario listeners are like, oh yeah, Ontario is always competitive. Well, it wasn't. That was the first national championship in a long, long time. So I'm wondering what the mood was around the team where, like I said, you guys always compete at the OUA level, but now that you're winning games at the national level, like, was there just a different mood or a different feeling around the team that year? Oh, wow. Great question. Um, definitely like around, like in terms of like my, our second year when we won the national championship or the third year? Uh, let's go both actually, but let's start with your second year. 
Second year, obviously the first year, we lost a bunch of vets. Like we lost Charlotte Sider, Jen Nielsen, Sarah Chapin, right? They graduated, right? But we won an OUA championship first time in a while, you know? So that was huge. So we kind of had that, kind of had that energy like, hey, we can do this. It's not like it's, uh, it's possible for us for sure. And then going into the second year, I just remember sitting and like in my, I think I was living with one of my teammates at the time, Aaron. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, it's going to be a good year, boys. I just have a feeling for sure. I didn't know what it was. The energy that was in the gym, it was positive. We're here to work. We won that national championship. It was like, go, go from the beginning, you know? And it was this clear motive. We won a national championship and we had it. We're not letting it slip away again. Now, you see it in other sports where I think once you lose a big moment, you kind of get a taste or you get an idea of what it takes to win at that level. So I know you mentioned you lost a lot of athletes and a lot of athletes were on the court like Jen Nielsen and them. But do you think that helped the young people to kind of look around and be like, you know what? Nationals isn't a big deal. Like winning a quarterfinal, like we can do that again. We can win a semifinal. Like what was that a mood or because you guys weren't the ones actually like the point scorers that year? Did that have any link to you guys winning nationals so quickly after that event? I think just having a good system that Christine implemented since the beginning of the season and just since I got there, I think no matter who was on the court, we had this system that just worked and it gave us such amount of confidence and it gave us such an uh, amount of calm when we were playing that it helped our game a hundred percent. So yeah, we did lose like Daniel's a heavy hitter. We lost Char Sider, also a heavy hitter too, you know? But at the end, we still had that same system, right? So unfortunately, you know, people have to graduate. But it's still, even though we had new players come in, our system didn't change. So it still worked out to our benefit, 100%. And, and I mean, you guys still had vets, but I'm wondering what it was like adding an Alina Dorman, who's just like a first year with this live arm and is awesome, but you still have people like you and Anna Fior. And I think Crookshank was the other left side and Tessa in the middle. Like you still had players in really good places, but it's just so interesting to see a first year come in and just be so nonchalant, but so dominant at the same time. You know what I mean? Oh, the moment Alina came into the gym, powerhouse i saw her swing the first time I'm like my god that kid has a swing <laughs> but i saw how she played and she played with such intent and she played with such just pure concentration and i'm thinking she's gonna go far like she she's gonna get us some points she's in it 100 so i knew from the beginning too i'm like yeah she's she's gonna she's gonna do good she's gonna do real good and She's been doing great. (laughs) (laughs) And when you think back uh, of the national championship year, did Christine just have such a routine for you guys that it felt normal? Like, is it easy to get distracted that event? Because like your quarterfinal is the event. You lose that one. It's kind of like, we're going to hang around for a couple of days, but it's hard to fire up for those five, six matches versus like you win the quarterfinal. And then you got to like calm your nerves, eat, watch video again and get back into it and play a semi. Like, what was it like just going through that event where it's like, it became more and more real as you went, but could you anchor to something to kind of calm the nerves? That routine. Christine had a solid game day routine for us from the moment we wake up to the time uh, we have to do our game day warm up. And we've been practicing the same routines, I think, for every single game for sure. And even just prepping before the games, too, you know, that was a huge help, too. Uh, we always have PowerPoints at the beginning of our season. Christine comes up with them and she 
I like the way that she describes it, that each game is like a step. And I believe Anna talked about this in her episode, actually, but Christine would break it down. Like we had, these are the steps in our game, but she would further break it down to how many practices we have in a year, how many games we have this year, how many strength and conditioning sessions do we have in a year? And at first it's so overwhelming because you're thinking, my God, we have so much to do. <laughs> but then she breaks it down. And she's like, right now, that's not important. This week is important. So we have practice today. That's what we're focusing on. And having that type of routine for practices leading up to games and from game day routines, that helped prep us in the best way possible and helped calm those nerves, especially game day nerves. I mean, they're bound to happen. It's a totally normal reaction to have before games. But being prepared definitely made every other game be like, all right, what we practice is what we're here to do. We've done everything. We're ready to go. Straight up. And, and where did Vincenzo fit into this? Because obviously Christine deserves a lot of credit, but I, th- I think he does as well where, I mean, it, it's pretty academically gifted roster. So I'm sure you guys can take information, but that guy has every stat possible in every situation. So how is he able to share it without like overloading you or making you think like you're thinking when you're playing versus just being physical and being athletic? Oh, Vincenzo was such an incredible addition to our team. I was introduced, like he came in the same year I did and Anna did as well. And his knowledge on statistics and just watching the technical aspect of the game, it really opened my eyes in terms of the volleyball game for sure. And I learned a lot just by doing video with him. You know, like we would do video in um, the office and then he would say, all right, here's, let's say you're receiving. He's like, what did you, what happened here? And I'm like, oh, I shanked the ball. And he's like, okay, where did you shank the ball? In what moment did you realize something happened? And he would like slowly look at the video with you and you can see exactly in what moment you did it, you know, and stuff like that. Plus with the statistics too, you know, you could be thinking, man, I played horribly that game. I absolutely trashed it. And then he shows you your statistics because he's like, yeah. Your reception was positive. You had a 50% positive reception, close to um, only made a couple errors. Attacking was a little bit lower, right? But the statistics kind of helped bring you out of your head, if that makes sense, kind of the technical aspect of it. You know, it kind of made you realize, like, you did okay. You may think you did worse, but you actually did okay. And I, I enjoyed learning statistics from him, and I enjoyed learning the technical side of it because it definitely helped my game hundred percent, whether it's doing individuals with him and him fixing, for instance, like a minor hand gesture in my block and him saying, that's the reason why, you know, rather than through feeling. And for me, it helped me a lot in my game for sure. So you're getting awesome coaching, you're winning a national championship. And then I think if I have my timeline correctly, after the national championship year, you kind of get more playing time and you have a big year. And I think you have a big year from the service line too. And you're still getting digs and you're getting blocks. Like it just seems your skills are going up, but I'm curious. I, I just think there has to be something in the water there that why are the U of T women's team so good at serving? Like I, I see you guys come to the beach and it's you and Tessa and Kaylee and now Anna and Anna are just serving bombs. Like do you guys skip stretching and just serve every day of practice? Like I'm curious how often uh, is Christine just weaponizing the skill that, it, like I said, it seems like everybody there can just serve bombs. Oh man, we serving was a huge thing for us for sure. I love I love serving and we had drills for it, you know, to practice serving, but with Vincenzo as well too, you know, he had a, a lot of help in terms of like how we should be serving, where to where to where, for instance, 
you know, and also just like targets, you know, like focus on your strength where you want to serve and don't be afraid. That was one of the big things. I think a lot of the time we're scared to serve tough because we're scared of making an error. But sometimes I would hear Christine saying, I don't care. I want you to risk it. I want you to risk it and we'll see, you know? And so I think having that mentality being like, risk it, it is what it is. I'd rather you serve it hard and it goes out of bounds and you give them an easy opportunity to score on us. Now, same thing with going from club to university, obviously that was going to be a jump. Was there any confirmation or was it just always a goal of yours to play pro? Like obviously as your career progressed, it wasn't unusual for you to be getting double digit kills, excuse me, uh, double digit digs. Like obviously you're playing at a high level at a good program, but pro just seems like such a, a mystery for us here in Canada. I'm curious when you thought like, yeah, I can play this sport for a living. Like I want to play at the next level. This came in my fifth year. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. It came to me in my fifth year, my fourth year. I didn't think of it, right? But my fifth year came and I thought, I'm still not done. I'm still not done playing. And I remember talking to Anna about it. She's like, Oh yeah, I'm gonna, you know, talk to Vincenzo. And I thought, okay. So I went up to Vinny and I talked to him about it. I said, Listen, I would love to play pro. And he asked me, he's like, You do? Okay, you have a good chance, you know? And I thought, really, that was confirmation for me, because I thought I was you know, maybe like, I don't know, like over-exaggerating thinking, yeah, I have a chance. But the fact that I got confirmation from him saying, yeah, you can actually play. It was kind of huge for me. I thought, okay, I can actually do this. So I was able to get some footage with, with the help of Vincenzo. He created a highlight reel for me. I was able to get game footage actually that he had from videoing or uh, videotaping or games, excuse me. So I had all the skills to have, like I had all the physical data Right. And I even had the mental confirmation from Vinny saying you can do this. Uh, just before we get to the pro thing, I am curious, you get confirmation from, from Vinny and he says like, yeah, you have a shot, but where do you go from there? Like, do, I, I'm sure I, I don't want to again, speak out of turn, but did you even know what your club was until they were interested in you? It's not like we're fans of clubs or we know all the leagues. Right. So did he put you in touch with an agent? Did you talk to an alumni? Did you Google it? Like, how do you get an agent and then start getting offers? I, uh, that is, that is an excellent question. Um, honestly, I talked to my dad, <laughs> my dad, he, listen, my dad, he is not in the sports world. He's just, you know, he's an electrical engineer, but man, does he love volleyball? Let me tell you, he loves volleyball. He's so into it ever since I started playing. So he really does his research. And so when I told him my dream, he told him, okay, so you have to start looking for agents. And I'm like, what is an agent? How does this work? You know, I've heard of the term agent in like basketball and stuff, but <laughs> I'm like, there's agents for volleyball too. And he's like, yeah. And he gave me a bunch of like agents that he found, foolish ones. And he's like, I want you to call them, email them. And you're going to see from there. And I said, okay. And so I started emailing, calling. I spoke to a couple, didn't get, uh, again, a lot of confirmation, but that's okay. And then from there, my dad said, okay, you have to go and now start emailing every club, like go country by country, go from pro A to pro B to even the pro C division, email all the clubs. And then he would help me find different divisions and the club's uh, emails. And we would just start sending emails out same kind of way that I did with universities too. Like, Hey, my name is so-and-so I am this and this interested in playing for uh, overseas. Are you looking for a left side receiver? Uh, here's my highlight you know, all this stuff. And I, I've sent many, many, many emails for sure. 
So from there, I'm curious, how do you weigh options? Because again, we're not fans. So it, if I was in your position and I started getting offers, I don't know how I would compare this France offer to Germany, to Poland, to this or that. Like, then do you start looking at like standings or, or trying to Google translate the website to figure out like where in the world these places are? Like, what, what was the actual process to land on your club? Uh, so I got offered by, um, I got offered by a club in Austria, actually my first one. And this was before I found my agency. And so I found this club completely on my own. And, um, when I first went to Austria, cause I first said, I'm going to go for this offer in Austria just because I already committed saying, Hey, I'm going to go to this trial and I'll see from there. I was still considered technically free. I never signed anything. And we went and I went and I liked the girls. I liked the coach. But something didn't sit for me, to be honest. Something didn't seem right. And I spoke to my agent and my agent uh, helped me. And she said, we still have this club in France that's interested in you, for sure. And I said, really? They're still interested? And she says, yes. And so I started looking at the offers. And to be honest, when I look at offers, I kind of didn't know what I was looking for. I didn't know what to make a decision on, to be honest. And so I emailed Christine. I emailed Christine and I told her, Hey, I need some advice. You know, like she was my coach for five years, you know, and I asked her for some advice being like, what do you think I should do? I'm kind of in a very awkward position. I don't know what offer to take and kind of what to look at, you know? And so she emailed me back and uh, we chatted a bit about it for sure. And she told me to go with the friends offer simply just to go with the France offer. It seems better. It seemed like it would benefit me in the future if I continue to play volleyball or if I continue to do something else because French, right? French is a second language here in Canada. And that would definitely benefit me if I do decide to come back for sure. And I decided to go to France. I decided to go to France. It was a tough decision, but I'm very happy I made that decision because I've been with this club for three years. They have been... As a, as a first year abroad, I'm happy I got this team because they're so family-oriented. They're so welcoming and they really, really take, took care of me in my first year for sure and still do to this day. Yeah, give us the, the off-court scoop before we jump into your year of pro. Like, um, I understand it's pretty north. Like, it's the north part of France and population-wise, it might be similar to what you grew up in, like North York, right? Like, what's what was the actual environment like before we get to the on-court stuff? So... France. So I live in, I play pro in a town called Valenciennes. It's in the northern region of France and it's just bordering alongside Belgium, actually. So it's really nice. It's really close to Belgium school. But the northern part of France, it's very rainy. <laughs> it rains quite a lot, for sure. Uh, like I think, depending on what time of the season it is, fall is mostly rain. Mostly, mostly rain. It's raining all day. It's misty. You know, it's not great, the rain, but on some days I'm like, I like it. It's nice. You know, but the people in, in Valencian are super nice. They're super welcoming. They're very curious as to why is there a Canadian person in Valencian? And they're also just super nice, you know, super nice, super welcoming, you know, and very, very friendly. Yeah. I would love to say just, they're just super friendly. And, and just looking up and down the roster with your time there, like it's not unusual for there to be two or three uh, non-France nationals on the team, but you haven't had the joy of, of playing with another Canadian just by doing this show. Like that tends to make life a little bit easier. Uh, I'm curious, how have you kind of survived? Like is coach an English speaker? Obviously a lot of your teammates are probably bilingual, but are, are you picking up French? Like how did you settle into just like the social side of being in this town as well? 
So the first, my first year was very, very rough for sure, just because I haven't spoken French or practiced it since grade 12, actually five years didn't practice it. So Google Translate was my best friend in France <laughs> to communicate with my club president and all this stuff. But thankfully, yes, my coach, uh, Galim, he speaks English, actually. So I was able to communicate through him. And our setter, Susanna, she's also uh, she's Slovak. And uh, so I was able to communicate with her in English as well, too. However, the rest of my team, not a lot of them spoke English. You know, most of them spoke French and stuff. I had one girl. Her name is Noemi, actually. And she said, I lived in Mississauga for a solid 10 months. I'm like, of all places, Mississauga. <laughs> it was the most random thing. And she, so she spoke a bit of English, too, for sure. She's like, oh, I, I lived in Mississauga for a school or something. I'm like, <laughs> so wild, so wild. But I'm like, I love it. I think that's sick. I think that's so cool that you went to Canada. It's incredible. So at first, the language barrier was tough. For sure, I definitely felt alone just because of, you know, not being able to communicate clearly what I, what kind of my needs are and stuff like that. I genuinely felt like I would not, like something, like I wouldn't be able to do this. But I definitely had a great, great team because they all tried to communicate with me. And additionally, I, as well, my coach, he coaches a 15-year team in France as well, too. He coached his daughter, basically, for the club team. And he asked me, do you want to be an assistant coach with me? And I said, Okay, uh, sure. I didn't really know at that moment what that meant in terms of like what I would be doing, but I said, okay, I've done some clinics for U of T, you know, with Christine and stuff like that. So I know something. I mean, I could be a little bit of help. And he kind of showed me just like how he coaches with the girls and stuff like that. And he said, hey, I can't make practice today. I need you to run practice. And I'm sitting there looking at him like, okay. I can't let down my coach now, let alone the coach that I'm coaching with. So I literally sat down and I used Google translate to translate with the girls and even asked some of my teammates like, Hey, am I translating this right? Am I saying this right? And, um, and from there I had a little bit more confidence to speak. And even through that, the club president asked me with my teammate Fama to coach a 15 B team. And from there was kind of like, okay, this is my intro to learning French. We're just going to go with it. Mama will do most of the talking, but if I need to speak, I will translate it and speak it the best way that I can. If I make an error, so be it. Quick sidetrack because kids have no filter. I'm curious, is there anything you say in English that they laugh at because of like a Canadian accent? Or is there any French words that you just struggle because they'll, they'll start laughing and you're like in a serious chat and they'll say, Oh, they, they say milk funny or something weird. Like, was there anything that the kids kind of gave you the gears on with either your French accent or just English words? Oh, the moment I came and I started speaking French, they all looked at me very like, what is going on? <laughs> and I'm like, am I, did I say something wrong? And they're like, no, just your accent. Your accent was very, very different, you know, but like you're speaking it fine. It's just the accents really <laughs> like laughing at these kids and stuff like that. And they try to speak English to me, which is even funnier too. Cause they're saying like the most things like, hi, how are you? My name is so-and-so. And I'm like, what else do you know? They're like, that's it. That's all I got. <laughs> I just used it all right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes if they don't listen, which, you know, when they're 15 years old, sometimes they get really chatty and they're excited to be with their friends and I want them to listen to a drill specifically. I just start speaking in English. I'm like, all right, this is what we're going to do. I need three girls back row and stuff. And they all look at me absolutely mortified. They're like, whoa, whoa, hold it, hold it. We don't understand. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, 
what did I say? They're like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm like, it's good to listen. It's good to listen. <laughs> so it's good to see how you kind of settled in off court and there are some distractions there, but with you going from U of T, I, I imagine the volleyball was at a pretty good level, but did it feel like another jump or just like the training load or was it almost a relief that you didn't have school? Like you were basically a pro athlete at U of T and now you just took away the academic side. Like how, how did you settle into the actual performing volleyball side? Definitely the jump between being a full-time student athlete to just being an athlete was huge because now I had, you know, I was training maybe once or twice a day, almost every day for sure. But I just also had big chunks of time in my day between practices that I'm like, what do I do? Because from the, from being at U of T, I'm on like, I'm hit the ground running. I wake up, have breakfast, go from one class and go to another, go to a weight training session, come back home possibly. And then go straight to practice after that and eat before that. And now I go to practice, come home, and I'm like, okay, what do I do? What do I do with my free time? And I felt guilty for a while. I felt like I should be doing something more. Like, why am I not doing anything with my time? And I spoke to my coach about it. He's like, yeah, that's that's pro volleyball for you. You have a lot of free time. Utilize it. I'm like, how do I utilize it? (laughs) Do I sleep? He's like, you can sleep. As long as you have energy for practice, you can sleep. I'm like, Okay, so I, I napped a lot in my first year, that's for sure. And you mentioned not being able to communicate with your teammates. I'm wondering if the time difference also made it hard because we've heard from other athletes on the show that sometimes you want to talk to people at home, but they have their own lives and they have their own things going on. So it might be like you have free time, but maybe uh, mom, dad, friends, they have their own things going on and they can't just make time for you. Like, was that another challenge of playing overseas? Yeah, it was. It was definitely definitely hard with the time zone change for sure because basically I left my family and my friends and everything that I grew up with and I am now in a foreign country six hour time difference and so if I'm for instance like halfway through my day like 6 p.m for instance or 7 p.m it's still like a typical work day you know so it was hard for me to even talk like plus my parents you know my mom and I had a routine I got there that at around 1 p.m and it would be like 7 a.m her time uh, she would call me, right? And we would have that separate routine. So I would talk to her after like workout or something, or even just walking on my way home from our gym. And it was nice because I got to talk to her then. And my dad would call me in the evenings and I would talk to him like around, I think it would be 10 PM, my time in France. And it would be his around uh, 4 PM because he would, he finishes work, work around three, you know? So even though yeah, the times have changed, so it's different. I definitely, my parents really helped make it work so that I didn't feel alone. And my friends too, my friends would just be texting me, whether it be Instagram or a WhatsApp group, you know, and just filling each other in and having even like once a week, like Skype call sessions, WhatsApp group call sessions, just to, um, you know, just to catch up and be like, Hey, how's it going? (laughs) What's new? What did you do today? You know, which was really definitely did help too, you know, feeling with the, you know, feeling that kind of uh, loneliness, you know, especially. So again, the the indoor pro scene is a little bit foreign to me because I didn't even get to experience it. I, I haven't coached it like anything like that. But I do find it very interesting that you've been with the same club for three years, because again, by doing the show and learning, there's athletes that like to bet on themselves and they're signing the one year deal. And if they like it, they might stay, but if they'd like to go to a different club or experience a different country, what it is about your club that you're like, I, if they want me back, I'm coming back. Like, are you signing multi-year deals? If you don't mind me asking, are you one at a time? Like, well, what is the appeal that you've really just found a home with your club so i sign like one uh, one contract per year so it's for a full year and that's kind of how each year goes 
my first year obviously was my first year and that was actually the first year COVID happened. Right. So my season got caught in March. And so I got sent home, came back for the second season. It got caught in October. <laughs> we had to stop playing in October and I got sent home in November and I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm not giving up on this team because I want to win something with this team. Eventually if COVID kind of stops shutting us down third year, this past year comes back, you know, and we hit the ground running. Just it's a good solid season for us. We had good players coming on, you know, we had a bunch of girls coming back and it felt solid. It genuinely did. And so I was thrilled to come back and play for this team for sure. Right. And then, you know, this past year was, Basically, it was a lot that happened this past year, for sure. I didn't expect it. I don't think anyone did. And, you know, I'm so grateful that I can go back again to this team because they asked me to come back and I definitely do see as a home with them, for sure, to come back. And just uh, one thing I had in my notes here that I want to get your perspective on, obviously, you're you're pretty well-rounded person, but if you're playing a professional sport and you experience an injury, I mean, at some point it has to affect your identity or just what you're going to do with your time or your whole routine is going to go off. So with you having some pretty gnarly knee stuff like ACL surgery, like how did you respond from that? Was the club really supportive? Like, like I said, like, I I don't think your whole identity is involved in the sport of volleyball, but a lot of your time and, and passion is invested into it. So what, take me through, how did the injury happen? And then how did you kind of rehab and get ready to go again? Oof. Um, so, uh, it basically happened. I was going off for an attack and I didn't collide with anyone and I landed and I felt my knee buckle basically. So my, and this is just a heads up for anyone listening. Uh, my kneecap basically dislocated itself when I landed and it, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's not a fun thing to say. My, uh, basically my kneecap left and it decided to take all this ligaments of it. I like to say it's a short and sweet. Let's go with that. Um, but I remember I hit the floor and I immediately started screaming because it genuinely felt like I broke a bone and I started looking on the floor thinking, is there blood? Is there blood? Is my tibia out? Is, and nothing was, but in that moment I thought, no, God, no, please, please let it not be my knee, you know? And I just remember screaming. I don't remember a lot just because it was so, there was a lot, but I remember my coach coming to me and he's like, I need to strain your leg. And I'm like, no, 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 don't touch it. Don't you touch my knee. Don't touch my knee. And he says, Bronco, we have to strain it. And I heard the pop back in. So my knee, yep. Relocated itself. Fun. Um, but, and I got carried off for sure. It was, um, wasn't a fun experience for sure. Definitely was rough was rough because it was one of our, you know, like you always hear about ACL injuries and you always hear about it and you get so terrified. You're like, I don't want this to happen, you know, cause you know, it's, it's a serious injury for sure. Right. And then, you know, it happens to you and you're like, damn, no way. Why? All these questions are running through your head for sure. So yeah, like after the accident that happened, you know, I mentally wasn't in a good place. I'll be honest. I was very, um, I didn't know what to do. You know, I was still waiting for an MRI and stuff like that. And I kind of didn't know, right. I was kind of, at first I was still kind of hopeful. Like, I think it's kind of like a false positivity. I don't know why. And, um, 
I was thinking, I'm like, oh, the hospital made me do a squat and it kind of hurt coming up, but I could do a squat, you know, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. You know, it's kind of false positivity. <laughs> but then I go with my club president to get an MRI and we, um, we find out that it is um, an ACL tear, an ALL tear, and a partial meniscal tear. And I'm thinking, oh, so it could get that worse. Okay, cool. Great. Fun times. Fun times. And I, it hit me hard in the hospital. And I started just bawling even harder than I did on the court, probably. And my club president was like, it's okay. It's fine. Like, you're going to be okay. You'll do rehabilitation. We'll take care of you. Like, don't worry. You've been with us for so long. You're like family, you know? And that moment, I was so grateful, right? But at the same time, too, I was like, my career, what's going to happen? You know, I was a real fear, you know, am I going to play again? But obviously in the heat of the moment, of course, you know, you're not thinking straight right now. Obviously I just had surgery, you know, everything was fixed and now it's just a rehab. And plus athletes have came back from ACL tears and injuries like this. So it's not, you're done, you know, it's a process, but you're not done. And that kind of motivated me to kind of keep going, you know, but it did take me a while to pull myself out of it for sure. hundred percent. Yeah. I don't want to date myself, but too much, but me growing up like 20, 30 years ago, if you heard ACL, it was almost career ending at that point where now, like you said, it's something that we've all kind of heard of and here you are bouncing back less than a year. Right. So it's kind of amazing how, far, I guess, modern medicine's come, but like, just tell me about your club being supportive. Cause it's obviously you're, you got into this gnarly injury. You're not hopping on a flight to go home. So obviously you're, you're in a hospital bed. Like it's so cool to hear that your club president was there, but did your teammates visit you? Did your parents eventually get a chance to come over? Like, how are you dealing with that aspect where you're just like not isolated as a, as a foreigner in some hospital in France? My, uh, obviously the club really was there. They would come to my apartment being like, do you need anything? Like they were so, I was so, I was so grateful that they would ask me any day, like, do you need anything? Like we can get you groceries. I had my teammate come and get groceries for me and she would bring them up to my apartment because sometimes I just, I mean, not sometimes I just couldn't, I couldn't leave my apartment. And that was really helpful. And, you know, even just my teammates coming and visiting me, that was also really nice too. And my coach, my coach made me come out of the house and come to practices every day we had practice. And at first I didn't understand this. I thought, I'm like, I can barely walk, man. <laughs> what do you mean you want me to come to practices? But then I understood the mental aspect that if I'm around my team and stuff like that, then, you know, I wouldn't be alone. Right. So now I under, like looking back at it, I'm like, no, I understand why my coach did this, you know, for sure. And I'm grateful that he did that, you know, and he's even offered, he's like, I'll come pick you up myself. I don't care. I'll come and get you, but you're coming to practice. I don't care. You'll sit on the bench, but you're coming. And he really kept me involved too. So like he would have me do statistics. He'd say, I want you to do the statistics for our team. I want you to see our service reception, all this stuff like that on pen and paper. And he's like, I want you to do that for the team. And that really also helped for sure. It definitely helped kind of rewire my focus instead of thinking, oh, I'm hurt. More like, okay, I'm hurt. What can I do? What am I going to do about this situation? Um, and then obviously God bless my parents. Both of them came not at the same time, but two weeks apart. My dad, my mom came with me when I got surgery done and she stayed with me through everything. And then she left and a day later, my dad came and he stayed with me when I started doing uh, uh, physiotherapy and stuff like that there for sure. 
And um, it was truly, I was truly, I'm truly grateful still to this day that my, I have some of my parents support like that because they just said, listen, my kid's hurt. I need to go and make sure she's okay and just be supportive, you know? And they, my parents literally, I can't thank them enough, you know? I'm so grateful to have such a wonderful parents. It, your coach seems to be really good with the Jedi mind tricks here where they're getting you to coach youth kids. All of a sudden you're learning French, you're having a personality. You're so confident with the, with the language. Now you're doing stats and it's an excuse to get out of the house and see your teammates again, just as I'm scrolling up and down the roster with your tenure there. It, I don't know. This seems rare to me, but like I said, you're on one year deal at a time. I imagine your other athletes are, but this is a club that doesn't have a lot of turnover. Like I see the same names popping up over and over again. Like, is that something you're excited with that you're returning from injury, but like it, you're going into a club where the coach is the same. And like, like I said, a lot of these names keep popping up. Like, is it just starting to feel almost like that university experience where you know what to expect versus it's not like 10 new teammates every year, like some other pros might experience. Yeah. It kind of feels like that for sure. Um, a lot of these girls, like a lot of the French, um, a lot of my French teammates, they live in Valenciennes actually, you know, so them coming back, right. It's just, it makes much more sense, you know, for them to come and stay with the club for sure. And it's nice because these are some of the girls that I've played with and it kind of creates a bigger, I don't want to say like, it, it, there's more trust too. I want to say, if that makes sense. Like I know for a fact that, We've played with them for, I played with these girls for now almost three years now. And like, we have a system based on like what we've been practicing, what we've been playing and stuff like that. So that trust comes in with that. And additionally, my coach him being the same coach for three years, you know, we have that trust in him too, because each year, despite, you know, despite having COVID hit us twice and everything, we were able to move up a division, right? From national three to national two and stay in national two but at least fight to try to go up to national one which is elite or pro b in this case yeah this is this is so awesome sorry we had to go deep there but i think just the way you've handled your injury hopefully some of our listeners can get something out of that because uh yeah it's scary but i think the way you've handled it and just your attitude and outlook going back so yeah we got a little deeper on the show than we like to sometimes we're a little lighthearted, but uh yeah thanks for for sharing what you did there Oh, uh, my pleasure. I think just kind of bringing a reality that like, it's not always, it's not always up and down rehab or like, you know, a physical rehab, for instance, or an injury, you know, there are ups and downs. And I remember I was reading uh, kind of like an interview with Jasmine White from the national team. And she even went through an injury herself too. And she says, the mental aspect of it is the hardest to overcome, you know, the physical, yes, for sure. You're rebuilding a muscle or a tendon or basic mechanics, but it's the mental aspect that really is the hardest because there's a lot of fear, you know, whether you want to like to have faith in that leg again, you know, to trust uh, doing anything, bending, you know, definitely went over that hundred percent. Like I had a big fear of bending my knee because I thought I'm going to break it. <laughs> I'm going to break it just with my luck. I might break it, you know? Um, but the one thing that she did say was patience Patience is the one thing that you have to come out, like you have to come with when it comes to, um, you know, recovery. And I couldn't agree more because it is an up and down battle, but it will eventually, you'll eventually come out of it. You know, it may not be pretty, but there is a light at the end and you'll get back to playing, you know. 
For sure. For sure. So cool for you to share that. So uh, we'll end on a lighter note because one thing we, we built into tradition on the show is just to deal with high performers and everything you've gone through with volleyball. But the volleyball community is so awesome that I imagine something odd or funny must have happened uh, along the way. So I was wondering if you could just share one, uh, maybe more lighthearted, but something you wouldn't have experienced if you weren't such a good volleyball player. Uh, so obviously I have such amazing luck when it comes to travel days, for sure. I don't know why this happens to me, but it just does. So this, I had a flight this past year from Toronto to Lisbon and then from Lisbon to Brussels. Because we live so close to the Belgian border, it's easy for my club to pick me up from Brussels airport. So beginning of the year, you know, I go to Toronto Pearson, smooth sailing, easy. Check my bag, COVID passports checked, everything's good to go, get on the plane, go from Toronto to Lisbon, easy breezy, totally normal. I'm starting to get off the plane and I hear people, oh, I have a connecting flight to Brussels. And I'm thinking, nice, okay, there's some more people with me. So it's not just myself. So I thought, okay, cool. We get off the plane and we start going to border control because we did enter a European Union country. So obviously we have to do border control. Um, We get down and we get to the border control area and there's like big sections. One section is for like European Union passports where you can just kind of scan it and you can go on your merry way. You don't need to have someone check it right? Or like stamp it and let you go. Um, but staff members said, sorry, these are closed. They're not working. I'm thinking, okay. But he said, there's a line for European Union. I'm like, okay, cool. So I keep following. We get to the center, like where all the passengers are supposed to be checked for border. There was about a hundred to 150 people waiting to be like brought in through border control. And I'm thinking, no, no, that's, that's, <laughs> You know, I'm looking at him thinking, okay, maybe there's a lot of flight. Okay, that makes sense, right? And we landed at, I think, I think it was 6.50 in the morning, right? It was very early, right? And it was like 10 minutes before 7, and there's nobody in border control. So I'm thinking, okay, maybe shift starts at 7. I don't really know, but I'll wait in line. It is what it is, right? There's six booths, right, for two uh, border patrol individuals to sit inside, right? So 12 in total, and I'm thinking, all right, we got at least 10 of these guys in here. We're going to make it to our flight. I had an hour 45 uh, a connection between my flight from Lisbon to Brussels. So I'm like, okay, easy. Get it through border control, get through security, find my gate, and just chill. We're good. We're fine, you know? Yeah, it could get, it just got worse. So three, three border patrol people showed up. One for the European Union and two for international. I'm thinking, no, no, no. And I'm just in this line and I'm looking at my time and looking at how the line is progressing slowly, slowly through border control. And I'm thinking at this point, I'm thinking, I'm not going to make this flight. I'm not going to make this flight. This is ridiculous. This is insane. And the man checking and doing his job, you know, it was a lot slower, especially for one person. I'm thinking, Oh man, I call my mom and it was 2 AM in Canada. (laughs) Bless her for answering the phone. (laughs) And, I, and, my, and my mom's like, what's going on? What happened? I'm like, I'm not going to make my flight. She's like, why? And I just show her the crap. She's like, oh my God, what happened? I didn't know the answer. So I started looking on the Portuguese website or I think the airline rights hook. And they said three days prior on their website, they said there was going to be a strike, a like, um, a yeah, a worker strike at the airport. And I'm thinking, no, please, no. And I didn't get informed of this actually. And I was like, so I try to go, eventually I start seeing people for, with European Union passports try to use a scanner. And some of them went through. I'm thinking, okay, we can do this. 30 minutes. I still have 30 minutes. I can make it. No problem. 
scanner didn't work for me. And I'm thinking, well, all right, back in the line I go. Or some very nice woman next to me held my spot. I started inching my way closer to the front of the line, 10 minutes remaining. I started getting this like false positivity. You know, I started manifesting, thinking, I'm going to make this flight. I can do it. I can make it in 10 minutes. I'm going to make this flight. I'm going to sit on that plane. I'm going to Brussels. I can make this. Get through uh, border control. They stamp my passport. See you later. Go through security. Tell her, hey, I need to make this flight. Go, go through security so fast. I have seven minutes. I'm like, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. Woman at the end, she's like, what flight are you looking for? I'm like, to Brussels. Where is it? She's like, it's gone. I'm like, what do you mean it's gone? She's like, it's on a tarmac. And I look at her, I'm like, half the people aren't even on the plane. What do you mean it's gone? And I start thinking, no, this can't be possible. And she's like, well, you guys were late. And I'm like, ma'am, there was a strike. <laughs> there was a strike. That was not, that's, please don't say that's our fault. <laughs> and so... She, thankfully, the woman got me on a connecting flight from Nice, uh, from Lisbon to Nice, and then from Nice to Brussels. Not that, okay? You know, I had an extra time, but I can make it. From Nice, got to Nice, beautiful. I had to recheck in. I was like, okay. But then I ran, got to my uh, gates, and then we flew to Brussels. I think I eventually fell asleep at that point because I was just exhausted. Get to Brussels, luggage carousel. I'm thinking, all right, I just have to grab my luggage, meet my club president, and I'm done. <laughs> Suitcase never came. Suitcase never came. <laughs> of course. And I'm saying that you've got to be kidding. I go to the two airlines that I took and I said, hey, my suitcase didn't came. They're like, where are you flying from? I'm like, Toronto to Lisbon. And they said, oh, yeah, that was, um, uh, and what's your next flight? And I said, from Lisbon to Brussels. They're like, oh, yeah, that, there was a strike there, wasn't it? I'm like, yes, there was a strike. Yes. And so they're like, okay, well, you didn't take our airline to go to Brussels. I'm like, no, I took two different ones. And they're like, yeah, well, we can't help you. I'm thinking, I'm like, okay. And they're like, you have to go to them. I'm like, okay. At this point, I have the club president calling me and I'm telling him, please wait, please wait. I'm dealing with something. I'm exhausted right now. <laughs> go to the other airline. Thankfully, they were very helpful. And they were like, yep, we put in what your bag looks like and we'll find it for you. And I said, okay. And so she started looking it up. She's like, we don't know where it is. I'm like, we don't know where my suitcase is. She's like, no. And so I'm thinking in my head, it could be in Lisbon, it could be in Nice, it could be somewhere in the corner of Brussels. For all I know, it could still be in Toronto. I don't know at this point. <laughs> we get, it's just, it got chaotic. It got even more chaotic. So I get the information, club president says hi to me. He asked me, how am I doing? I said, not well, but you know what? I'm just happy to be here at this point. Get to my apartment, I shower. I was so thankful for a shower at that moment because that calmed me down. And then the next couple of days, I start calling the airline saying, hey, can you tell me where my suitcase is? They said that they found my suitcase and that it was in Lisbon. And I said, so it was still in Lisbon this entire time. And they said, yeah, because of the flight situation, you have to check your bag. And I said, I had to check my bag. Okay, but how was I able to do that if I went past border and security and I was already in the terminal? How can I just leave and check it again? I, it didn't make sense to me. I'm like, how, how? So then they said they will deliver it to me in a couple of days. I was on my last pair of contacts and that thing came after 18 days. It came after 18 days and I got the call from the career, went downstairs, 
thanked the man, got my suitcase, brought it up. I laid it on the floor. I laid down next to my suitcase and sent the selfie with my suitcase to my club <laughs> president saying it finally came. <laughs> and he just sent me laughing emojis. He's like, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> <laughs> this just reminds me so much. We had Simone Factor Boutin on the show. Obviously, Beach and Indoor are a little bit different, but he basically said, if you can thrive and do well in the off-court stuff, you're going to be awesome on court. Like You have to deal with so much stuff to be a professional volleyball player that like you think it's all technical, tactical. It's like, no, you just need to, to survive the lifestyle and you'll be totally fine on court. That stuff takes care of itself. Oh, absolutely. If you can handle having your suitcase lost and then have a worker strike and you can handle that with these. Oh my God, I need to talk to this person. I need tips because I barely made it. I was losing my mind. I was freaking out. I think I cried at one point. I was just, I couldn't, I need to talk to that person. I need to figure it out. Oh, amazing. Oh, well, thanks for coming on. I'm glad we could catch you before you, you know, have to catch another flight. Hopefully it's easier this time. You're not doing the Toronto Lisbon thing again, are you? Direct, direct, <laughs> direct straight to Paris. Let's go. Well, this is awesome. Hopefully we'll be able to keep up with your season and get you back on again. Cause I'm sure there's more stories, but yeah, thanks for everything that you just shared today. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a blast and I honestly had such a great time and just catching up with you too. It was so fun.